Welcome to Season 2 of the LexRex Institute Podcast. We've got a lot of exciting things planned for you guys this season. As always, I'm Alexander Hopperbush. And I'm David Truschel. And this is the LexRex Institute Podcast. So this season we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. Uh, one of our big changes, if you're watching this on YouTube or Rumble or one of our Vimeo, one of our other platforms, I'm sure you've already noticed, you can see us. This is a video <laughs> podcast this season, where last season we just had audio. Uh, this season you can see our... Our hideous faces, and yeah, regret having um, chosen yeah. that option. <laughs> it, it may or may not be a positive, depending on your perspective, or if you <laughs> you know have functional eyes. Right. I think we did post one clip last uh, last season, but anyway, our clips, you're, you're right. Our though, clips that. do markedly worse than the audio, <laughs> so I think I think that shows people's opinions on that. But we'll see if we post the whole episodes, whether or not um, how those do. But if you do want to watch it that way, we got a lot of requests to be able to watch our podcast visually. So you got the option now at least. And uh, yep. a few other changes to the format. We're going to be, what's the release schedule now, David? We're planning, and you know, it's still tentative, but the, the plan is for bi-weekly releases, so two a month basically, that's the plan. Um, if that changes, and, and it could, we'll let you know, but that's, that's what we're assuming. So you'll be following uh, the moon now rather than the calendar, I guess, is the change there. That's, or is it still going to be Mondays? It's still going to be still Mondays. Monday, so you're not following the moon. Well, that that well that is Moon Day, you know. <laughs> That's a fair um, point. <laughs> so you, you thought know, you thought that the etymology corner, what do we call it, Alligator Alley? I think something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you thought that was gone, but you were wrong about that. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, this, I feel like this is spiraling wildly <laughs> off track already. Yeah. Um, so try. Every other week is going to be the general release schedule. We may modify that going forward. We will be announcing yeah. subjects ahead of time. So you can follow either on our website, which a new website is going to be launching very, very soon. may have already launched by the time this podcast goes up. Uh, you can follow. Yeah. That's probably the best place to follow it. You can sign up for notifications. Our Facebook page will also have regular notifications saying what the topics of each episode will be. So you can look forward to whatever we're going to talk about and... You know, not be surprised when Monday comes around. You'll know what it is beforehand. Yeah. So, any other yeah. changes? I don't think to the podcast, maybe to things in general. Oh, oh, we should thank everybody for the success of our fundraising yes, drive. Yes, our, our matching drive. I think we called it the uh, yeah. Be Thankful for Our Constitution drive. Uh, that ended up getting about $20,000 in contributions, all of which will be fully matched by our anonymous donor. Thank you so much. You know who you are if you donated to that. We really appreciate it. We could not do this work without those contributions. So that was a huge success. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I, I guess and last change of the podcast, we're going a little less topical this year. We're going to be doing, oh, you know, yeah. I guess our, our segment on the French Revolution was very popular. Uh, we got a lot of positive comments on that. Our episode about different judicial philosophies was very, very popular. So we're going to be focusing on more broad, theoretical, political philosophy, legal philosophy, jurisprudential type issues yeah. rather than citing legal news. Now, don't worry. You're still going to get legal news. We're still going to have it. But the focus is shifting slightly. So that's some stuff to look forward to this next season. All right. Without further ado. Look at these three words written larger than the rest with a special pride never written before. Or since tall words proudly saying, we the people.
That's right. And mm-hmm. though our Constitution is not a living document, certainly there are legal developments, right? And yep. there were a lot of legal developments last year. So that's sort of our topic for today. We're talking about the biggest legal developments of year of our Lord 2022. <laughs> Let's jump into right. our, what is it, a top seven list, I think is what we have? Or um, I think I think it ended up being six. Six. That's um, an unusual number for a top list. Well, so so is seven. I wanted five. You insisted on more. <laughs> I wanted ten, um, but then we'd be here all day. Well, so. I, I thought that I thought that was too many. Well, <laughs> there's been a lot we'll, of argument we'll, behind we'll the scenes on this, but we settled on a top six list. You know, it's, camel is a horse made by a committee. This is a top list uh-huh. made by a committee of two. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> our top six legal developments for 2022. Yeah, and it should be noted, not in any particular order. Yeah. Um, this isn't, you know, from six to one or anything like that. It's just written down, more or less, at random. Yeah, well, and, and also, there's a lot of things we could have put in here that we didn't, uh, which is why it was yes. kind of hard to narrow yeah. it down to this many. Um, and we'll have honorable mentions at the end. But here are, you know, here's our assessment of some of the biggest things that affected your rights last year, because you ought to know that, right? I mean, these mm-hmm. things all implicate your rights, if they changed in the last year, you should know that. So, all right, that's now that I've given it some introduction. David, do you want to introduce the first one? <laughs> sure. So the first one on the list is the courts cracking down on quote-unquote emergency measures related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah. And th- this came in a few different uh, sort of guises. Yeah, so obviously when the pandemic started, everything got shut down. That included the courts. And when the courts got reopened, their calendars were so backlogged that a lot of these people that had procedural issues arising out of the pandemic, we feel did not get adequate justice, Uh, particularly the the, the huge numbers of people that were subject to uh, various mandates of various kinds, people who were compelled to get mandatory vaccination, who were subject to mandatory testing policies, people like that. There were so many of those cases that a lot of them simply could not be heard before the courts. That started to sort of slow down a little bit. And courts are now finally hearing those cases. And we saw some of those cases decided in 2022. Uh, And how'd they turn out? Well, very often in favor of the people who felt, you know, that their their rights had been infringed under these emergency measures or, you know, what have you, which, you know, the the Lexar Institute has done a a good deal of work with people who felt that their employers were imposing on their medical rights, that sort of thing. Um, and more often than not, for us at least, that's gone well. Yeah. Although we've, uh, we've had a few, you know, even just in this last week, we had some, in my opinion, crazy rulings uh, against yeah. our clients. So, yeah. you know, has, there's still a lot of work 100%. to be done on this. And we're going to continue to fight those cases. In fact, uh, Victoria Katana, we talked to you about her in the past, a judge recently dismissed her case totally unjustly, in our view, you know, basically saying that there's no recourse here. You know, for somebody who had d- numerous disabilities that precluded vaccination and testing, uh, we're looking at appealing that, although we do need to get that case funded, and we need funding from that separate from the rest of it. So she has a Give, Send, Go page right now. We'll put a link to that in our description. Sorry, that's kind of a tangent, but worth mentioning. Yes. Yeah. I think she needs justice. Yeah, but, you know, in... It hasn't been a 100% success record, but I, I would say on the whole, it's been mostly pretty positive yeah. um, for the, the work that we've done. But beyond that as well, 
I focus on the negative because I like to win them all. (laughs) (laughs) Which is probably not great for somebody promoting something. (laughs) No. Um, Yeah, not the the best marketing instincts. We we saw some interesting things with cases being reviewed or overturned for procedural reasons related to what courts decided to do sort of ad hoc to deal with COVID. A couple of cases in particular in Massachusetts and California that we talked about previously. I'll link that episode um, in the description later when I remember which one it is. But basically where judges refused to let people come in person and didn't take adequate steps to allow for effective teleconferencing. So there was an instance where a mother in a custody trial was basically unable to even speak to the court because she didn't have cell reception. Um, and had to drive around the city of Boston looking for a place where she could talk to the court right. and you know was effectively unable to give testimony. Thankfully, they went. They decided they would re- revisit that case. I'm glad she and, had representation and, on that one. Remember, that was our concern, and we talked yeah. about it last time, was whether or not she could even get competent counsel on appeal. But I guess she did yeah. and was vindicated, as she should have been. Yeah. And uh, there was a case in San Francisco where, you know, the judge insisted that they do only telephone, not, you know, no video, because he was afraid that someone might record the trial. Um, Why that's harder on video. And, <laughs> I think yeah, we commented that and, last time, too. <laughs> we may have. But where, the, you know, the, the the defendant felt that he wasn't able to defend himself to the, you know, the fullest capacity without being able to, you know, show his face. And that makes a lot of sense. That's a yeah. big part of communication. Again, thankfully, they, they decided to, to at least look at that case again. I'm not sure whether that's been decided uh, in, in the long run, but it came up for review anyway. And, and we've seen, so with respect to a lot of these mandate, I don't know what to call them, for lack of a better word, mandate cases, like mandatory vaccination, yeah. mandatory testing, whatever you want to call those. The issue here is most of those so-called mandates it's really a bad word for him, but I think we talked about that in the past. But <laughs> most of these so-called mandates are imposed pursuant to state law. So yeah. we've sort of been working our way through in a lot of these states and getting favorable rulings in many of them. Now, there have been unfavorable rulings as well, but I would say that over 2022, the course of those rulings has tended favorably to litig- the, the plaintiffs in those cases. So people bringing the lawsuit saying, you know, you can't make me get vaccinated. There were a few really big ones that came out of New York very recently. You know, Colorado's had some very favorable rulings on that. Even in California, we've had a few victories on that. But, you know, there's a lot of work still to be done. But prior to 2022, we had not seen really any rulings on these COVID-19 issues. So yeah, that's a huge development of last year. Something to keep watching because it's not done. Yeah. All right. And we do need to keep it moving because we've got several of these to get through. Next up on the list, we've got basically election law and election procedure becoming a major hot button issue. Yeah. Yeah. So that was that was and, obviously you know, a huge scramble in the wake of 2020. After yeah. you know November, tons of lawsuits were filed, but it was very last minute. They were all on shortened notice. A lot of the evidence wasn't really heard. We've seen a lot more election lawsuits coming up in the years after that. And particularly, you know, there were sort of the ones that, that were based on the November 2020 results that kind of percolated for a little while and ultimately fizzled out. Uh, most of those aren't really still going on. Um, but then in 2022, we had another election. So a lot of yeah. the strategies and lessons that were learned from 2020 were able to be implemented in 2022. You know, we kept telling you guys that, that if people said there's no hope in bringing election challenges, you know, the courts are rejected it anyway. We lost, throw up your hands, give up, don't try in the future. It's exactly the wrong attitude. 
because 2020 established precedent for a lot of these things that can then be applied in subsequent elections. And that's exactly what we saw going on in 2022. And there's a few big cases we want to talk about along those lines. First one is a case we were actually involved on. That's David Eastman's case. So David Eastman is a legislator from the state of Alaska. He's a Republican legislator. He'd held his seat there for quite a while, but he was present at the January 6th protests against the you know, the, the Trump certification in January 6, 2021. And I guess is also a, a lifetime member of the Oath Keepers. Well, his political opponent, who actually was not a member of his district, so it's questionable whether or not he actually had standing on this case at all, but that was not an issue the court considered, so ignore that. <laughs> but, but his political <laughs> opponent basically challenged his legitimacy to hold office under a provision of Alaska's constitution that's an old sort of McCarthyist provision prohibiting yep. anybody who advocates for the violent overthrow of the government or is a member of an organization advocating for the violent overthrow of the government to hold political office within the state of Alaska. Yeah. And we ended up winning that one. You know, that, that case went in our favor. He can still continue to hold office. We went on free speech grounds, basically, that he has a right to associate with whoever the heck he wants. So it makes no difference whether or not Oath Keepers is an organization that advocates violent overthrow of the government. He would himself have had to say something advocating for the imminent overthrow of governments. You know, like, join me, people, let's storm the Capitol, something like that, (laughs) which obviously he didn't do. He gets to continue to hold office. Another big lake on this point is Kerry Lake's lawsuit. So Kerry Lake was a contender for governor of Arizona. Her opponent, the Secretary of State, the then Secretary of State, Hobbs, so, you know, a little bit of a conflict there since Secretary of State administers yeah. the election, right? Mm-hmm. And then it turned out on Election Day there were all kinds of procedural problems that went on. People had to wait in line for multiple hours to vote. Lots of people went home. Lots of people saw the news about that, didn't vote at all. Well, it turned out the majority of those problems were the result of totally foreseeable, predictable, and in fact, things that they had predicted and did nothing about. Specifically, the ballots were printed incorrectly. Basically, 20-inch ballots were printed, uh, scaled down to 19 inches, such that the ballot scanners could not scan them. So these ballot scanners were all having problems, throwing out errors, creating a huge backlog here, all of which could have been prevented if the Secretary of State and the County of Maricopa had done the legally required logic and accuracy testing on these ballot scanners, but they didn't. Obviously, an irregularity in that case has gotten some traction. You know, we talked how a lot of the election lawsuits 2020 were just thrown out before the evidence was heard. We actually got to the evidence on this one, got a negative ruling, but it did go on appeal, and that appeal is still currently pending. So yeah. I think we actually I did a lot of work on that reply that was just filed last week, or when this comes out two weeks ago, on Tuesday. Hearing's coming up, so we'll keep you guys updated on that one. And I, I want to just take one second to mention sort of broader perspective here. One of the things that I think we have, as an organization have tried to emphasize is the importance of actually abiding by electoral procedures. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's one of those things where it's the easiest thing in the world to just sort of let irregularities go by because, you know, A, who really knows as an average voter what the procedure is supposed to be? You show up, you do what they tell you, typically. Mm-hmm. And B, you know, it's such a rare event, too. There's only It's fairly complicated, know, only... too. If you look at you know yeah. everything that's involved in disseminating ballots, collecting ballots, counting ballots, fairly complicated. Right. But that means that it's of, you know, 
tremendous value to have at least a decent percent of the public be aware of issues around electoral procedure, be ready to sort of pay attention to those things yeah. because it's so easy for things to go wrong. Well, that was and, what it, that's what excited me about this case. Is I think that yeah. particularly in 2020, way too much emphasis, mostly by the media, less so by the actual lawsuits themselves, but way too much emphasis was placed on the idea of fraud. You know, that the election was yeah. stolen through people casting fraudulent votes. I don't think there's really any way in most elections to credibly prove that people cast fraudulent votes. I just don't think that's something that, you know, we have a secret ballot. How are you going to prove which right. ballots are the fraudulent ones and which ones aren't? You can't really. The reason why mm -hmm. we have very carefully spelled out and, and, you know, what ought to be very carefully administered election procedure is so that you can't bring allegations of fraud down the road. We make fraud very difficult to commit by having good procedure. Now, I think there are, A, you know, definite defects in a lot of the procedures that we have. Uh, failure to require, you know, voter, any kind of ID before voting, I think is a substantial failure of proper protocol. Um, but then there's also things that are, in fact, already laws that by many states are not enforced. And yeah. Carrie Lake's case was a great example, I think, of the second kind of problem which really sheds light on the first kind of problem, too, uh, because, you know, if these voter machines are only causing substantial delay because they aren't following the requirements with respect to those machines, are they really doing what the taxpayer funded them to do? Probably not. Yeah. So I think you see both kind of problems with that. Uh, but certainly when they don't do legally mandated logic and accuracy testing, that's a real problem. Yeah. And, you know, in so, again, just to, to sort of give greater context here, the the point here is not that you should be concerned when the political outcome that you wanted doesn't happen and you can maybe look at the voting and say oh there were some you know this went wrong or that went wrong the point is we all want to have confidence in our elections yeah and regardless of who's winning them we should all have a vested interest in knowing that the election was carried out fairly by the book yeah i mean that, that's how we know that it's secure that's how you prevent people from claiming fraud took place is if you have good procedures to make sure that it's prevented and when you don't, you know, when you have these machines that people already don't trust, right? Because there's people out there that say machines are inherently unreliable. You got to have hand counted ballot, you know, paper ballots for everything, paper trail for everything. You know, I'm, I'm kind of sympathetic to that view, actually quite sympathetic to it. But, you know, given that we're going to have machines, those machines have to be something people can rely upon to be right. good. And if you don't do anything to say, you know, when we plug in, <laughs> vote for a candidate and then scan in that ballot, does the machine actually record a vote for a candidate? They're supposed to test that prior to the election yep. to make sure that the machine does what it's supposed to do. They didn't do that. Uh -huh. And that's obvious from the fact that they printed all these ballots that wouldn't scan properly. And so, all right, so now, here, here's, the, here's the funny part. They claim, so in our, we say you didn't do logic and accuracy testing. You know what their response to that is? No. We did logic and accuracy testing on these machines years ago. <laughs> Yeah, famously, <laughs> machines never break down over time. Right, years ago, um, we did that. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's... Um, I think they call that computer illiteracy. Um, <laughs> well, also legal uh, illiteracy, because the, the elections code requires they do logic and accurate testing prior to each election. That doesn't, you know, yeah. that doesn't mean... I guess, you know, technically 1900 is prior to every sub election that takes right. place after 1900. But I think the clear intent of that law means prior to each election you do it. Yes. Anyway, last last point on election law. And this, this case is still 
you know, to be decided by the Supreme Court. But Moore v. Harper, which is a, a North Carolina related case, you, you'll probably hear us talk about that again in the future because it it's going to very likely test what they call the independent state legislature theory. You've been on record before as saying it should just be independent state legislature fact. It's very clear um, in the Constitution, you know, in, but, in, the man, uh, in the manner that they shall direct, you know, that's... Yeah, but ba- basically, you know, the, the question here is how do states get to draw their electoral maps and, you know, can the judiciary of a state or the governor of a state just decide to change the map or throw out the map that the legislature brings to them. You know, I, um, I really so- wish you'd had Chevron right after this one, because the argument <laughs> is precisely the opposite, right? Because it, in Chevron, the same, mm-hmm. the very same people who are arguing that the legislature should not have plenary power to redraw district lines and, yeah. and the court should be able to review it are saying that mm-hmm. bureaucracies should have plenary power to do basically whatever the heck they want, and the court shouldn't be able to review it. Yeah, so keep that in mind for when we come to Chevron Doctrine a bit later in the show. It I would guess. seem that, you know, at least some people in our political system seem to care a lot more about the outcome than about principle, you know? Well, that's <laughs> startling to me. I, I would never have believed that. That's not thing. us. That, that is not us at all. You know, it's, no, that, um, I, I would uh, actually, I would love if a Democrat who feels that they lost an election unfairly would come to us with an election lawsuit. I think that we'd probably be more likely to win on it. I would prefer to have the results overturned for a Republican in favor of a Democrat, frankly. We should move on, though, to our next topic, which, you know, I I wasn't quite sure how to encapsulate this neatly in a phrase, but we saw a number of, of legal issues arising that sort of test the relationship between state and federal authority. Yeah. Not, in, as, in not as bad as the nullification crisis in the 1840s, certainly not as bad as the no. Civil War uh, or the war between uh-huh. the states, whichever you may <laughs> prefer. But certainly we have a lot of instances of states basically ignoring federal law and, interestingly, state courts ruling in accordance with state law on those points, which, you know, we've talked before about the Supremacy Clause. If state and federal law conflict on a point on which the federal government has legitimate constitutional power, uh, the federal law trumps. Now, if it isn't within their legitimate constitutional purview, it was never a valid law to begin with. Of course, the state law is going to supersede. Uh, and I'm not going to give my opinions about you know which of those things is true in any of these instances. I just think it's significant and relevant that state courts and states are becoming a lot more likely to contravene federal law on various points and doing it much more often. Yeah, and, you know, I think the, the most obvious and sort of like, quote-unquote, clean example of that, so to speak, was a, a, a recent Colorado ballot proposition, I think from yeah. November, where they put it on, you know, they asked their voters to decide should they legalize the use of magic mushrooms, to speak colloquially, you know. The kind that Mario mushrooms. uses, right? <laughs> um, maybe you know I, there could be some subtext to those games that I haven't been aware. Different of. kind of magic mushrooms. The uh, I don't know how you pronounce yeah. it. the psilo, psilocybin. I, maybe so. Psilocybin or psilocybin. I'm not sure, but yeah. you know, the hallucinogenic or psychedelic mushrooms, yeah. basically. Yeah, hippie which stuff. Which are yeah, which are federally illegal. They're Schedule One substance, so you know, there's basically like marijuana. No, you know, yeah. we, we've been we saw no, we saw this for years. With respect yeah, to marijuana, yeah. uh, many states, more and more states, decriminalizing or even fully legalizing marijuana. 
in contravention yeah. of federal law, because remember that is still it right. is still a felony, a federal felony mm-hmm. to possess marijuana. You know, lots of lawyers, even in California, you know, where it's pretty much fully legal, will not get involved in helping out any business that's involved in selling marijuana. Yeah, because mm-hmm. you're jeopardizing your ability to practice law by doing that because you've sworn an oath to uphold federal law. So you know, I'm not going to give my opinions on that either. That's probably not the subject for this episode. But anyway, that's extended beyond marijuana at this point now to uh, Mm -hmm. the cybacillin mushrooms. Uh, Is there no end to... (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, it it is an interesting... You know, you alluded to one of the complications that arises from that, which is, you know, people getting involved in businesses. In in Colorado's case with the mushrooms, um, I did a little digging... Uh, I think they haven't permitted retail, but you can grow so them. So you can't you get can them at Walmart them. yet? No. Okay. <laughs> but you're, they're permitting now people to raise these mushrooms to consume them for their own use and, and so on. You, you can't traffic in them under their new ballot. I find that but. very funny because what that shows is deference to the commerce power, the, the congressional yeah. commerce power. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah. uh, well, I guess, you know, I guess Scalia did uphold the uh, marijuana regulation under the commerce power. Yeah. So maybe this is okay. You know, maybe this, maybe they're looking for a federal lawsuit against it so they can see if it falls outside the commerce power. I don't know. <laughs> Possibly. Um, you know, because <laughs> you know, this was listeners... never an item in interstate commerce, but you know, that's, I think it wouldn't really be any different from marijuana. So I think no. they'd probably get and the same ruling on that. Listeners who remember us talking about the commerce clause in the past will, will probably, you know, recall that the commerce Clause has been pressed beyond what it seems to be for. Yeah, um, any number <laughs> may regulate of times commerce the between the states can apply even if it isn't commerce and even if it isn't between the states. So exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe these people would be buying this illegal substance from other states if they weren't growing it themselves. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there you yeah, go. Or so, I guess um, there's like some mushroom. Maybe it's not a mushroom. Some fungus. I know they say it's the world's largest organism. It spans like eight yep. states or something like that so maybe the mushroom itself is interstate commerce who knows <laughs> i think it is a mushroom maybe it's mere existence um, is interstate commerce i don't i i think it's it's predominantly under oregon or something like that i i also don't think but could, could uh, oregon it's... regulate you know the the washington <laughs> portions of that mushroom that's just gibbons v ogden again at that point <laughs> you know, that's, rather, rather than interstate waters it's interstate fungi i don't know yeah I don't think that one is a magic mushroom, though. Ah, <laughs> so, well. <laughs> probably not to let directly. About to save that challenge, then, I suppose. But uh-huh. <laughs> that was not a legal development of 2022. Uh, but along the, so, no. along the lines of, uh, I guess, what do we want to call it? I don't want to call it state usurpation of federal law, because I think some of these no. instances, they are valid. I think, it's, I think it's valid to claim that Congress never had any authority to regulate that thing, so it does fall back to the states. Um, yeah, I think conflict is probably yeah. you know the closest shorthand okay. that we've yeah, got. State and federal um, conflict. But, um, yeah, so Biden v. Texas involved Texas and a group of other um, states on the Mexico border, challenging basically because the Biden administration had said it wasn't going to continue to follow this remain in Mexico policy that had been set up under the Trump Which administration. Which is that Mexicans have to remain in Mexico. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> what did that to do? What, like people, you know... Coming to the border, claiming to be seeking asylum, and basically, right. you know, the 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 way the rule was written, 
said either they can be detained in the U.S. until their you know case can be heard and you can make a determination on whether or not they're going to get asylum, or they can remain if they want to be free. The border. You know, if they don't want to be yeah. in custody, they can remain in Mexico until their case is heard. Right. And so the the Biden administration said, you know, we're not going to do that. Um, you know, a combination of we don't want to and it's too expensive to detain this many people. Um, well, then they could remain in gonna, Mexico. Right. Um, but we're not going to also, you know, force them back across the border because you know, I, I forget what the justification you know, the, was. The I Democrats, it, ever wary of of frivolous spending, argued that well, it was too expensive. Fa- the might, famously fiscally conservative party. You know, that, that may be a bit too partisan. No, that's podcast. look, we call it fiscal conservatism for a reason. I think anybody well, could see that it's totally specious that they're gonna claim, well, you know, they, suddenly now they claim they care about the expenditure. Well, regardless of the reasons, <laughs> uh, you know, among other things, Texas and, and the other states claimed the administration hadn't properly followed the administrative rule, which is this process known as notice and comment. So you give notice that you're going to change a rule or implement a new rule, yeah. and you ask for comment from the stakeholders, which in this case would obviously include the border states. We talked about that before. That's, that's where, Usually yeah. it's just lobbyists that comment. Um, I think we, we right. got the example, I think, of chocolate or maybe ketchup. Yes. We were talking about Ke- it before. Ketchup. Ketchup. We, we yeah. Talked about, yeah. Uh, yeah, we that's... talked about Heinz. <laughs> yeah. Um, but any, at any rate, in this case, I think the border states would reasonably say, you know, hey, we want to weigh in on this because – you know, when people cross the border, they come into our states. Uh-huh. Um, so it affects us and not other states. So, yeah. Yeah. So that, that was one prong of the challenge, basically saying you didn't follow the administrative rules that are in place. Um, but it was also an interesting circumstance just in general because it was states seeking to enjoin the federal government to continue enforcing a policy rather than trying to get them to, you know, reverse a policy. Right. Which is very rare. Policy. Yeah, that's, it's, yeah. It's, it's not, not too often. common to do that. So anyway... <laughs> Final disposition of this case. <laughs> there were it's fairly complicated. There were three issues heard. Uh, basically, mm-hmm. it was whether or not the court can even compel the federal government to enforce this law. And on that issue, Texas wins. They, the court can absolutely do that. Second issue we didn't really talk about. I think it's the least important issue, though it is the one where Biden wins. Is that the the law in question does not, as such, compel the secretary to uh, hold people in Mexico prior to their um, you know, prior to the, the deportation hearing. You know, I think nobody ever really claimed that. I don't, I'm not sure why that claim was in here. And then the third point of whether or not the actual like, comment and review process was properly followed, that was remanded right. back to the lower case or for, for the, I'm sorry, to the lower court for further adjudication because the facts of that had not yet been heard. Things typically go that way. If the other issues are dispositive, then you don't even get to the evidence. That's I don't know if that's clear. It comes up a lot. So just that's something you should probably be aware of. Uh, if if something can be decided on the basis of law, courts usually won't yeah. hear the evidence in the interest of judicial economy. So now that it's been decided that these issues can be heard by the court, it's been remanded for that evidence to actually be heard. So we'll right. have to wait for what's going on there. But anyway, another instance where states and what the states want to accomplish directly conflicts with federal objectives on a particular issue. Uh, the, and the yeah. last really significant area where this has gone on is another one that we've talked about before, and that's regulation of social media companies. Now, yeah. there's a lot of, I think, public support behind the idea of regulating social media companies, certainly uh, in sort of the beginning of 2023 and the last few months of 2022, we saw a lot of uh, congressional antitrust and, and you know regulatory antitrust uh, 
action thrown around with respect to Google. But, you know, more significantly, yeah. when it comes to the federal and state conflicts, what we've seen is, we talked about this with respect to the Texas law and the Florida law, are attempts of states to regulate the conduct of social media companies in an arena that I think would ordinarily be perceived as a federal arena. Yeah. And, you know, as we talked about when we were directly addressing those, it's interesting because you've got these companies that are, I, I think, mostly headquartered in Delaware and mostly operating out of California for the most Silicon part. Silicon Valley. Out of yeah. Silicon Valley. Um, but, and, you know, so the question, you know, it's interesting even, you know, to what extent could Texas or Florida do something, even if their laws were found to be valid? Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, and those, those well, issues and are still if you prohibit them from operating within Florida or Texas or wherever, is that an imposition on interstate commerce? Right. Yeah, exactly. I think what, this is not the last we've heard of social media uh, as a legal issue. And no. I, I can virtually guarantee it will continue through this year and probably in the foreseeable future. Well, and it now but, seems uh, the federal government's, at least on the antitrust aspect of it, less so on, I think, the censorship uh, aspect of it, which I yeah. th was what both the Texas and Florida uh, laws were aimed at. But certainly on right. the antitrust aspect of it, they're seeing a lot more federal interest on that, too. So state and federal interests may end up converging on this issue. Yeah. Uh, I think Because I think that really... The, the federal regulatory interest in it has been with respect to the, uh, the fact that Google basically has a monopoly on online ads. You know, I, yeah. I don't think that's entirely fair. Come on, Meta's part of that monopoly too. <laughs> but, 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 you know, basically those two companies control all online advertising. Yeah. More or and, less, yeah. Which, and advertising comes down to a speech issue as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I think very likely these issues could end up getting consolidated down the road. And that's something to watch for sure. All right. So next on the list, you know, this is presumably everyone would guess that we were going to talk about this one. Um, the end of the Roe v. Wade and more importantly, oh, I we were talking about KCD. Chevron and I was like, yeah, everybody could guess that one. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, because you already mentioned it, but that's next. That's after yeah. this. The, the end of the Roe v. Wade. And no, was that, was that big? That was big news last year? Uh-huh. Uh -huh, oh, I didn't uh -huh. hear about it. As we commented at the time, you liar, because we talked about <laughs> it on the show. Um, it's, you know, Roe v. Wade, it's sort of interesting that people stuck on the term Roe v. Wade when really the controlling law much more immediately was Casey v. Planned Parenthood. Yeah. But whatever you I mean, want to The reason that, Roe v. Wade was what got in the popular consciousness is it was sort of a nuclear bomb in yeah. the jurisprudence. I mean, it was huge, like... From all of a sudden, you know, it's illegal in the majority of states to it is now federally mandated that it must be legal in every state. And there's nothing right. Congress can do about it. This is a constitutional requirement. Like, that's a monumental yeah. shift. So, uh -huh. <laughs> And that's why, I, you know, whatever your feelings on, you know, abortion law, what you want to be the case, what you don't want to be the case. I, th I thought one of the most interesting things was this sudden reaction where it was like oh this is such a huge change how can they possibly do this the court has gone too well, far they this did it before. such a big well exactly <laughs> right um and so you know for from my perspective and you know to be fair to a lot of the democratic com commentators as well they said it just shows that you know democratic lawmakers got complacent because it was oh this is a constitutional right it has to be everywhere and a lot of them probably did less than they might otherwise have done to just implement the legislation they wanted to see yeah. in their states. 
Um, and so I, I think that, that shows the, the dangers of relying on the Supreme Court to accomplish your policy positions. Or any one um, thing in our government. Yeah. Right? You know, uh -huh. there's, there's <laughs> well, separation I mean, of powers fair, I, and checks and balances for a reason. Yes, but to be fair, mm -hmm. you know, I think the thing you should rely on the most as sort of a durable form of policy is law. Yeah. <laughs> for your for your policy, or you mean, not for your policy positions, but... Well, in terms of, you know, a question like this, where it's like, what do you want to be the law? Oh, um, yes, yes. Probably, the, probably yeah. the best way to accomplish that is to actually legislate. Yeah, one would think. <laughs> well, they're doing that now, so... <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that, that's um, a big so, one. Know, Particularly Thomas's mm -hmm. dissent, or I'm sorry, concurrence in that case, I think is a huge yeah. development because, you know, his response to this, what some would call sort of a monumental shift in jurisprudence is bring it. I love hearing this stuff. You know, we want to look at Griswold. <laughs> I'll look at Griswold. You know, we want to look yeah. at the rest of them. I'll, I'll do it. So bring me, you know, bring me your 14th Amendment challenges. <laughs> so, yeah. Get, let's get rid of substantive due process once and for all, which that would really be a big change in our law. It would. Um, it would. It's not, you know, typical that a Supreme Court justice will say, will, will <laughs> invite people to say, you know, this case went pretty far, but I'd really like to go further. Please let me do it. Uh, Have we but, done but, 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 but Justice Thomas, you know, we will answer that call. We will bring those cases <laughs> <laughs> and you will get to hear them provided that you grant cert. <laughs> Have, Have we done an, an episode on substantive due process specifically i don't think we, we have, have not maybe maybe we should consider that at some that'd point. be a good um, one yeah yeah so yeah you're you're right that that aspect of it got a lot of of you know rightfully so it got a lot of attention a lot of negative attention it, it must be said from the press um thomas's concurrence i think he's fed up um, with it at this point yeah he was really incensed yeah. about that that court leak that was a huge deal you know the court's been sort of yeah. above the political fray on a lot of these things for a long long time uh, the idea that they would leak an unfinished Supreme Court opinion is really pretty outrageous. Yeah. So he figured, you know what? I'm done with all this. I'm just going to say it. It's, <laughs> I'm going to say it. You know, we've gone off the rails on this stuff, and I want to rein us in. <laughs> yeah. It's been, you know, he's definitely become a lot more expressive the last few years. Well, for, I think for um, over 10 years straight, I think he said nothing at one point on yeah. the Supreme Court. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd say he's gotten a lot more expressive. Well, you know, that, that was true in um, in argument, but even, even as you rightly point out, in this, you know, written opinion, um, yeah, it's probably more overt and voluble oh, yeah. than he tested. It's great. I love it. But like, it's we, we posted a super reel on our Facebook page of all of his, mm -hmm. um, his best moments from 2022. That's a legal development in its own right, is uh, Justice <laughs> Thomas is... Finding his speaking voice. Yeah, and it's, it's funny because he'll ask things that you know, aren't strictly relevant to the case that's in front of him. He thinks it's stupid. Anyway, to keep us moving, uh, just the last point I want to hit on this issue. And, you know, you'll remember that the, the case that overturned the Roe and Casey, you know, precedent uh, was Dobbs v. Jackson's Women's Health Organization. Mm -hmm. So we heard a lot about the Dobbs decision. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of commentary a lot of it inexpert, I would say. <laughs> from, uh, from you had to media. put it mildly. But, like some of that commentary uh, from um, justice or justice. He will never be a justice. <laughs> <laughs> from Merritt Garland um, was well, uh, and you know, know, sort of unbecoming of his office, but and and you know, from from the press in general, a lot of pontificating from people who probably you know could have saved themselves some of the embarrassment um, on yeah. some level, but. Um, you know, one of the most common things that we heard about was what about stare decisis? 
And so I just want to take a minute and, you know, let's talk about stare decisis, which is a, a legal term that means, let the, means let the decision stand. stand. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that's our entire system of precedent is based on stare right. decisis. The fact that earlier decisions have gone a certain way governs future decisions. That way you have consistency uh, in your legal system. You have laws that are predictable and your laws get clearer and clearer with time because any right. ambiguity ends up getting fleshed out through other cases. And, you know, that's kind of there's a lot of value in stare decisis. Yeah. So the, the big question, though, that a lot of people are raising is why does this, you know, why does this not violate stare decisis? Or if it does, why is it now permissible to do that? The court actually um, directly addressed that in its. <laughs> well, I mean, that's like the it, I, entire issue of their ruling is, is right. that, like Kavanaugh goes through these, you know, these when these elements are met overturning precedent is appropriate and then concludes that they've right. been met. So like, if you read it at all, I think you probably wouldn't ask that question. You would just right. say, well, that I, I think that they were wrong, that the standards yeah. were met for <laughs> overturning past precedent. Or, or maybe you'd yeah. say maybe there should never be standards overturning past precedent. I'm a big fan of segregation and think they um, never should yeah. have gotten rid of it. You know, that's my opinion. <laughs> never overturn yeah. past precedent. Please, that is yeah. not my opinion. I'm quoting what these people may think. <laughs> I think we usually say uh, paraphrasing when we're not directly yeah. quoting. But, um. I think that the court was right to overturn Plessy v. Ferguson. I think the segregation was bad yeah. and that Plessy v. Ferguson was never rightly decided. But some people would have you believe that overturning precedent is always wrong. Yeah. So anyway, I, I suppose that's another point to bear in mind here is, you know, um, the press sometimes has a shorter memory than you'd like them to yeah. um, for Supreme Court history. And, you know, when you start talking about, well, oh, what, now we have fewer constitutional rights than we used to have? You know, bear in mind that the court used to think that you had a right to force states to return your slaves to you if they escaped. All that to say, yes, yeah, they the used court, to think there were all kinds of things. They thought there was a right to, I don't know. Seg well, to segregated schools, <laughs> yeah. uh, among other things. Um, they thought there was a right to property and people. Like, yeah. that's a right that we no longer have. Like, right. Uh, and, you a know, lot of people didn't like that. A lot of people were very upset. They said their entire way of life. They made a lot of very big and important decisions around being able to own people. And I don't doubt that they did. You know, they're probably right. their entire decision to get involved in the cotton industry was based on being able to make somebody else do all the work for them. I understand that. You know, similarly, people make a lot of big and important decisions when it comes to abortion. But that's not necessarily sufficient to say that it shouldn't be overturned. Yeah. And, you know, all that to say... Yes, the court should be very circumspect about when it chooses to overturn past president uh, precedent. Excuse me. That's you know I, I think we can all endorse that idea, but that doesn't mean that past president is literally always set in stone forever. Or Commonwealth um, v. Hunt also overruled an important you know, the the right of business owners to repress uh, labor or, or you know um, collective bargaining to to, to repress yep. unionization. Mm -hmm. Commonwealth v. Hunt got rid of that. There's another time they got rid of a right. I think that most of the people complaining that they've gotten rid of rights here probably liked it most of the other times they got rid of rights. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that more than anything. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually working They usually on love taking away our rights. It's like their favorite thing in the world. <laughs> Just not this I'm one. I'm working on an essay that will hopefully go up on the new website uh, that has to do with this issue. So I'll, I'll, I'll keep some of my material. For I mean, that. suddenly they care about, about your right to a freedom of action. They've cared about that z exactly zero other times. <laughs> You're getting a little hot. <laughs> like I just find it totally disingenuous. Like, I mean, 
<laughs> I think you're getting a little agitated here. It's it's very it's it, that's bugged me for a long, long time. That's my personal opinion on this. But anyway, before we get too deep into the weeds on this, we should move on to our next topic. And it's you've been looking forward to it this whole time. I'm very happy to announce to you that we're finally going to talk about Chevron. Chevron, yeah, that's probably my favorite. I mean, yeah, Dom's is huge. I don't want to downplay that. That was huge, like you know, socially, yeah. culturally, but. Look, Chevron doctrine has been the bane. Though. Like that has been the, the, the thorn <laughs> in the side of any lawyer fighting for constitutionally limited government for decades. It's absurd. I mean, the idea that these totally unaccountable, unelected bureaucrats would be well, deferred to over and above the explicit words of Congress. So let's let's take a second and say what Chevron doctrine is, because yeah. uh, you, you've sort of jumped into it. There. Yeah, but sorry. Basically, Chevron Doctrine, which was, you know, a precedent uh, that the, the courts had since, what, the 80s? 80, I think 86 Chevron was heard. Could be wrong so, on that. Somewhere around there, me. anyway. Um, somewhere in the 80s, I'm almost positive, though. That basically says when a federal agency, you know, has an interpretation of the, the law that... Yeah. So the same thing we were talking about earlier, that, that whole regulatory process. Yeah. That's Congress makes a law. Congress, you know, say that they want to... Oh, they want to regulate the size and color of lollipops that are produced. So they create the Lollipop Regulation Bureau, and they say, we don't want to yeah. have lollipops that taste bad or that are ugly. <laughs> and that's what the law that Congress passes says. Then what, what the regulatory agency would then do is they would, through that comment, that public comment process, uh, would mm -hmm. proliferate regulations advancing that goal. So they would say things like, um, here are the acceptable range of colors. For lollipop, yeah. So they say, you know, here's the range of acceptable colors that you can have for a lollipop, mm. and they might say, here are the acceptable range of flavors for lollipops, and they might say something like, um, licorice is not an acceptable flavor because you know some people love licorice. I personally think it tastes horrible. You know, my dad yeah, loves it. I, I, I can't stand it. I think it might be a literally like one of those things where you can taste it or you can't kind of thing, like with broccoli, Maybe, it like tastes bitter to like some cilantro. people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cilantro is another good example. Um, but yeah. they say, yeah, you can't make <laughs> broccoli or cilantro or, or, or a, a licorice-flavored <laughs> lollipop. Yeah. Well, the court would say that as long as that interpretation is a reasonable interpretation yeah. of what Congress had enacted, courts yeah. are required and, to defer to the judgment of that bureaucracy. Yeah. And, you know, th there's two prongs to it. That's, that's one, and that's the much more important one, especially for what we're going to talk about. The other one is that, you know— if Congress has at some other point explicitly legislated about the issue, right. then you don't have to defer either. But for, 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 yeah, for yeah, practical I mean, purposes. If there's another um, law from Congress saying that yeah. it isn't their intent, then sure. <laughs> it's, you know, if yeah. they make a law that for, says licorice flavored lollipops are the licorice flavored, that's harder to say than you'd think. Licorice flavored <laughs> lollipops are the best. In fact, we're going to subsidize them. Um, you know, then, yeah. then, yeah, they probably can't prohibit them. Right, but, but for, for practical purposes, yes. The, basically, the idea was, you know, if a reasonable construction, or you know, I think the the phrasing has at least once been rendered a permissible construct. Yeah, that, that's the Brand the X precedent. I mean, yeah. this, it's been expanded yeah. beyond Chevron, but it's still uh, referred to as Chevron deference. We don't need to get into the case right. law here. We've done that before. Yeah. yeah. Um, which episode was that? That was you can a, find one it of the at, early ones. I think it's yeah. called Chevron <laughs> Deference, so you can... We'll, we'll link it somewhere, yeah. but yeah, it was one, one of our No, it's like, episodes. whatever one has ketchup in the title, click on that one. Yeah, <laughs> ketchup <laughs> nerds. Yeah, ketchup um, nerds, that's right. But uh, yeah, so basically, though, for the longest time, it was, you know, if you can hypothetically read the law 
in such a way that it would permit the agency to do this. Yeah, if you can contort your reasoning such that it could be right <laughs> to mean that. Like, I actually think I before you started on your hypothetical, I was going to say some, well, after you named the idea of a lollipop bureau, I was going to say they say there's only one acceptable flavor because only one lollipop tastes good, and that's licorice. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's like, well, and you know, the Congress did say only lollipops that taste good, and just, and you know mm-hmm. if the. The Lollipop Bureau has all the experts on lollipops, right. so they and must they had know public better. comment. And yeah. what do you know? The licorice <laughs> producers of America spent two hundred thousand dollars researching what flavors people like, and it turned out that and you know ninety percent only eat licorice. So yeah, um, uh, which yeah, I, and I say that specifically because I also hate licorice. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so you know, in for for a very long time, that was basically the the official orthodoxy of the court. Like if if the agency could show more or less that the law didn't forbid them from doing the thing necessarily uh, in, in sort of direct terms, then they could just do it. Which basically um, stripped the court of judicial review, right? So yeah. Yeah, we've talked a lot about non-delegation. That's basically right. when executive agencies strip Congress of the ability to make law. That's sort of a little bit involved here. But between non-delegation and Chevron doctrine, you have executive agencies stripping Congress of their ability to make the law and then stripping right. the courts of their ability to review it. So we started to walk back non-delegation. There was a lot of that in 2021. And if we'd done this episode last year, that probably would have been our number one thing for legal developments. But this year, we chipped away at the other end of it, and that's the Chevron deference. So what were some of the cases that did that, David? Yeah, well, one of the most important ones was a case called National Federation of Independent Business v. Department of Labor. And, you know, there were like five or six other defendants, individual officials. But you may remember this one as being the OSHA vaccine mandate case. Yeah. That was sort of how the, it got the headlines. But basically, OSHA implemented this rule saying large businesses in America, and I forget how they defined that, but you know, I think it was like over a certain, you know, over X number yeah. of employees, you have to implement either mandatory vaccination or you know, some kind of testing and control scheme in lieu of vaccination. And the court reviewed this. And it didn't say, you know what, you don't have the authority, Biden administration, to implement this kind of requirement, period. What they said was OSHA, OSHA can't do it. definitely. This, yeah, OSHA the, can't do it. It's the Occupational Health and Safety Administration. Yeah. COVID is um, not a workplace-related risk. COVID right. is a generalized risk. You could get it anywhere, and you could carry right. it to people anywhere. It is not the sort of risk for which Congress's enabling statute that creates OSHA and empowers OSHA created them to protect against. So it's outside right. their exactly. authority. So in, that was what OSHA's argument was. Basically, it was like people could get it at work. Um, therefore, it's an occupational hazard. Um, and So they can create yeah. laws against getting drunk or, or against alcohol because people might bring alcohol to work. Right. Or, you know, you know, or other kinds of drugs or, you know, someone might, uh, you know, bring a hammer to work and hurt somebody with it. You know, it's right. that, that is not a reasonable interpretation of Congress's intent in creating. OSHA. Right. Yeah. And I thought that that was actually, you know, this was another one where the there was a lot of fairly predictable press outrage about it. But I actually thought the court was very <laughs> restrained in this ruling. Where yeah, they didn't I think so, because they didn't, they didn't overrule Chevron. They just said that this didn't fall within Chevron deference. Right. And that brought up the issue of this thing that people talk about. You may have heard people talk about this idea of major questions doctrine. 
Um, and that was, you know, alluded to. Which is essentially to, not a thing. Right. It, it was sort of alluded to in, in the opinion on Chevron, but not really. But the press made a big deal about it. And they said, oh, they're using this made-up doctrine to The press X, both y, created a doctrine the court had not referred to <laughs> and then yeah. called that doctrine made up. Right. And, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, so, you know, that, that's kind of like, you know, David, yeah. you're a Lexamancer, right? <laughs> no, that's not true. We're... Lexamancy is made up. Well, he never called himself a Lexamancer. I... Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> point being, though, point being, you know, the court has referred to in the past, and I, I think also in this opinion, the idea that, you know, if something does have vast impact... It was probably not within Congress's intent when they created right, a law like not it. referring to that thing of vast <laughs> impact, right? Right. So, like, so if they created an organization that was supposed to, I don't know, promote agriculture, in, so, like, the agriculture agency, yep. say, and then they decided that the best thing for agriculture was if we killed 80% of the people in the United States. If that were something Congress wanted them to do in regulating agriculture... <laughs> they probably would have said it because yeah. that's significant. Uh, yeah. And, and so to me, what this really comes back to is that second prong of the Chevron test, which is, is this a reasonable interpretation of the statute? Uh -huh. Not a new doctrine that's being imposed. I, I think it's just a... It's not a, reasonable you know, to assume Congress is legislating matters of great social import when they do something like create a new post office. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Or so, you know, oh, we, we created this agency to, uh, you know, regulate common workplace hazards. And so it's like, oh, you know, they're going to be concerned about what kind of ladders you use in warehouses and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, they're also going than, to outlaw contraception. <laughs> yeah, or rather than that, that thing that existed to make sure your ladder was safe is now going to require you to undergo medical care that you don't want. Um, the, the thing that would make ladders, ladders the safest is if we surgically <laughs> installed a titanium cord into people's hips that so would make them, them permanently yeah. attached to those ladders. And OSHA is <laughs> going to now require that. Like, it doesn't matter that OSHA can say that that makes you safer at work and is directly right. related to a safe workplace. That was yeah. not within the purview of what Congress was authorizing them to do. And it's not... Critically, it's not a reasonable interpretation of it. <laughs> I think that's yeah, where even though that actually yeah. is related to workplace safety. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Right. Probably would um, make you safer. I don't know. Not a doctor. Yeah. Not that kind of doctor anyway. <laughs> right. Um, so that was, the, that was probably the biggest one. But there was another fairly big one as well. Um, American Hospital Association v. Becerra, which had to do with um, the authority of uh, the Department of Health and Human Services to make their own rules for their finances. Uh, the, the details are pretty boring there, and it gets, you know, nitty-gritty. And we also No, that's a great one. Um, Get into them, David. <laughs> but basically, uh, the law uh, that they were relying on gave them two options for how they would choose to refund hospitals for drug costs, and they chose to, you know, pick elements of the one option and elements of the other. And rather like a Chinese than, menu. <laughs> sort of yeah like you know you get you get uh you pick from your starters you pick from your mains yeah. <laughs> and that's the lunch special um but yeah r rather than pick the options Con that congress did given, not present it as a column a column b choice 
Right. It was, you can do this or you can do that. Right. They chose to do some of both, basically, and a group of hospitals sued them for that, saying, you know, you didn't reimburse us the right way. You don't get to just pick and choose yeah. this way. And the court said no yeah. substitutions. Basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fixed menu. Yeah. Um, so very similar result there. Uh, probably, you know, fewer headlines about that one just because it couldn't be tied into COVID-omania, um, which was right. obviously all the rage. But uh, that was another. They couldn't make that match a political well. agenda. You know, we, we actually we could have done the first one as part of our, our thing on the COVID cases, but I guess it fit better here. Yeah. So. There were also it, it, you know it, several you know, circuit definitely... court decisions that were really big on the issue of Chevron deference as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. We, we I, discussed I we a couple more... of those on this podcast. I'm forgetting the names of those cases now, but this this but is yeah. really. I mean, we're just we're, we're only citing a few cases with each of these items, but yeah, though understand those represent, you know. In some cases, dozens of others. Yeah. And I think you're right that we did see more willing. I think probably in part because the Supreme Court had signaled that it was more willing to sort of limit Chevron. I I think some of them were before the Supreme Court had even. I may just, I think this is writing the tide a little bit of some of the non-delegation stuff we saw last year. I think that, you know, people are becoming aware that we've got tens of thousands, I mean, literally tens of thousands of totally unaccountable bureaucrats in our system who are not subject to the will of any voter. And really, I mean, if you allow for unfettered uh, interpretation of, of Congress's statutes, they're not bound by Congress, they're not bound by the courts, right? which starts to look a lot like a dictatorship. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so uh, for me personally, I think probably the most important legal trend, and we, we talked earlier about Dobbs and its sort of social importance. But I think as far as law goes, I think this changing of the tides on Chevron is probably the biggest trend. I agree. Uh, Although as much as I appreciate Clarence Thomas's invitation to bring all these substantive due process cases, (laughs) that could have a huge effect on the law down the road. You know, I I wish in Dobbs they'd gone a little bit further and overruled Griswold in that one, too. I'm totally with Justice Thomas on that. Uh, If they'd overruled Griswold, I think that would have been huge in terms of the legal ramifications. Uh, But if they're just doing Roe... That is a huge social implication, but not necessarily huge legal ones. Right. So we'll have to see on that one. If, if they actually yeah. do take up those Griswold challenges, that may end up being a monumental shift. I kind of hope it is. Yeah. Well, time will tell. All right. And with that, let's move on to our final one. It's the death of the lemon test, or the ostensible death of the lemon test. We'll get into that in a second. <laughs> but is it? But, uh, exactly, <laughs> bum, bum, exactly. bum. We'll wait until next week. <laughs> <laughs> and the lemon test, which, which we've talked about uh, on a few occasions, is, is you know, the First Amendment, um, free, like, you know, freedom of religion test. It's sort of got um, a weight in culture that I think goes beyond its actual legal significance because it, it is sort of like a little dead end cul-de-sac of law where basically the court had articulated an idea that it couldn't really apply very well. Yeah. Um, and so all of the, you know, all of the religious cases end up coming under its purview, but it doesn't seem to, in my opinion, anyway, and obviously I'm not an attorney and not an expert, but it seems like it's, it's sort of a limited area of influence, but it's been a big problem for that area of law. Well, and the thing um, is, it's, everyone knows lemon's a terrible test, which is why they keep killing it. Um, but yeah. they never actually explicitly <laughs> say, you know, lemon is overturned. Lemon's no longer the test. Um, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to speak too soon on this, but I think Kennedy may have done that. Uh, Kennedy yeah, v. So the Bremerton School District. Kennedy v. Bremerton. Yeah, that was we we talked about this one. I think maybe it's our first twice. episode, right? 
I think it might be, yeah. yeah. But um, so uh, the, was his name Joseph Kennedy, or am I making that up? You're, I've forgotten. I, you know, I think it was because I asked if he was different from the notorious bootlegger and yeah. uh, and ambassador. But anyway, well, I guess we can call him <laughs> Coach Kennedy. Um, yeah. But Coach Kennedy, high school football coach in Texas, for you know, at a public school, so he's a government employee, and he, you know. And very differently from the more famous Kennedys, this man liked to pray. <laughs> so, yeah, Coach Kennedy had, had a habit of praying after the games were over at midfield. Um, and, you know, a lot of, again, interestingly, there was a lot of press reaction about this one that focused on things that were definitionally irrelevant to the case. Um, because the, the court ruled on the evidence it had before it, which, you know, said like... The press was basically, Coach Kennedy is very annoying, therefore he shouldn't have rights. <laughs> You know, that was kind of the position they took. (laughs) More or less. And and a lot of it was also, well, the evidence on record said this, but we actually think that wasn't what happened. Who cares? I mean, the court's rule is the evidentiary record in front of them. Exactly. Um, So basically, the the idea was the school eventually told him he couldn't pray on the field after games anymore because it could imply that he was pressuring the players to – pray with him and that's sort of compelled religious uh speech basically the the court ruled no basically (laughs) yeah that wasn't true and in fact it was uh this was we we commented on this at the time justice gorsuch said actually that's doubly protected behavior yeah it clarified the 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 hybrid rights standard from smith which is kind of dicta in smith you know alludes to well the reason why we think it's okay to not give this guy workers comp because he smoked this drug uh, is because if there were other rights that were involved and it weren't just a stupid thing he was trying to do, uh, then <laughs> then perhaps we would say it is protected. So here, this that's sort of expanded, and they say that, yeah, when two different constitutional rights, protected constitutional rights are impacted at the same time, specifically when it's free speech and free exercise, which are in the same amendment, yeah. that that's something that would get heightened protection. So that was that was probably the biggest freedom of religion case last year but there were there were a couple others as well shirtleff the city city of boston which was you know this guy wanted to fly a a flag with a cross on it at uh, boston city hall on a poll that they normally just let people sign up to use for whatever they want to promote the city said no you know it's a religious flag we can't do that he challenged he won um yeah so that'd be an establishment clause but yeah uh and then the Last one, uh, Carson v. Macon, we did an episode about this one as well, which Maine had a program uh, offering tuition aid to parents who didn't live near a public school because parts of Maine are very remote and they don't have, you know, uh, good opportunities for that. And they could not uh, and, prohibit that from being used in the parochial schools. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so there were some parents there who wanted to send their kids to Christian schools uh, and the state said, no, we're not going to do that. You can't use public money for religious purposes and the court said you know you can't carve out religious schooling just because it has religious elements to it um so all of that together was sort of taken to be a real tide shift and you know people talked about the death of the lemon test but the lemon clause has haunted our establishment clause jurisprudence for decades and perhaps it's finally dead and buried yeah and to that end i wanted to to read directly this paragraph this comes from Justice Gorsuch's opinion on the Shirtleft case. Uh, He says, To justify a policy that discriminated against religion, Boston sought to drag Lemon once more from its grave. It was a strategy as risky as it was unsound. Lemon ignored the original meaning of the Establishment Clause 
It disregarded mountains of precedent, and it substituted a serious constitutional inquiry with a guessing game. This court long ago in turn... Gorsuch is so good on those balancing test criticisms. Like, he's the best. (laughs) Yeah, but... This is the part I want to focus on. Yeah. <laughs> this court long ago interred Lenin, and it is past time for local officials and lower courts to let it lie. So what he said... We've already killed it. Stop bringing it back. We've already killed it. So is this latest one enough to actually kill it? <laughs> it's <laughs> or already is he just, dead. Stop it. You don't it, need another only, Iron Man movie. You know? Exactly. Or is this still just another instance where... It, Frankenstein like, you know, movie or whatever. Um who was it? Uh, yeah, Scalia was it? Who, yeah, that's who it's, it's it like one of the most hilarious things. Um, and, you know, I, yeah. I, obviously, Gorsuch keeps referencing it subtly here. I did a little less subtly earlier, but he explicitly <laughs> refers to the lemon test as being like a ghoul from a late night horror yeah, movie right, that is right. buried not quite six feet under, uh, so that he can yeah. you know come back. Ne- well, the secret to his success is it's so easy to kill. So you can kill it. You can bring it back each week. And he says, you know, it comes back this to hunt this time to to haunt the children of um, what was it. <laughs> Uh, Parish County School District, whichever district it was. Uh, yeah. Um, but anyway, so, you know, the question here is, is this an instance where, you know, you're like, well, look at the zombie. It's rotting. It's already dead. Just leave it be. And you didn't finish it off yet again. <laughs> I think he's saying I refuse to make <laughs> another of these stupid sequels. Like, I'm not going to do it. There's been enough Friday the 13th movies. <laughs> yeah. It's already well, dead. <laughs> you, you, you'd think, you'd think, you could hope. But, you know, will it rise yet again? I guess only time will tell. Uh, I think they just made a new Friday the 13th movie, didn't they? Maybe. You know, since I've been in the UK um, and I don't want to pay uh, to, to license a television, which is what you have to do here. Are you um, kidding me? I, no. Um, Be thankful for your freedoms, folks. I got on that tangent. Because I was going to say, I don't know if they're making a new Friday the 13th movie because I haven't been watching TV and haven't seen any trailers. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Are we through all of our? I think we're through our, our top list now, right? That that was that was the top six. Okay, so what are the honorable mentions? I don't see them written here, so hopefully you remembered all of them. The honorable mention, and we're not going to go in depth on these at all. So uh, you know, just be be aware, I guess, that these are trends. Delaware courts, you know, which they come up all the time because most corporations are headquartered there. For I thought you weren't going to go reasons. into them, David. Well. Two seconds of commentary. Anyway, becoming more <laughs> likely to compel specific performance. And if you're really interested in specifics on that. Look up the look Musk up, case. Yeah, yeah, the Elon Musk and Twitter debacle. Um, challenges to attorney, client, and executive privileges on document secrecy, that sort of thing. Yeah, lots of cases on that. Um, There's actually one coming up on that, too. So that may be better saved for 2024. Who knows? Yeah. Some signs that the courts may be looking to weaken qualified immunity for law enforcement. Um, we've talked a bit be about big. qualified immunity before. Yep. Uh, and the last thing I have written down here, um, the Bruin case, which was Bruin uh, v. Or uh, I think I have the other. I think it was the other way around. Like New York Pistol and Rifle Association v. Bruin. That was the big case. But basically, the, the court signaling that it's not interested anymore in balancing tests for Second Amendment rights. Yeah, that's huge, too. That one was really big. That one didn't make our top seven or six nope, or whatever. Uh, we couldn't add a know, seventh I'll... to talk about the fact that <laughs> Second Amendment rights are actually not being treated as second-class rights anymore. The Second I'll, Amendment I'll, doesn't I'll... mean second class. I'll point out to you, we're already well over time. Oh. Um, <laughs> and also, you were the one who had final cut on the, uh, the ones that we Oh, we should have had that. No, I'm going to blame you. <laughs> that's a big one. I, got, I, you know, I didn't include that because there's really only one big case on it. Right, what happened right, last right. year. Now, we ended up with Dobbs in any way because I figured everybody would have complained if we didn't put Dobbs. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah. 
All right, and in case you thought we were no longer doing it, you were <laughs> dead wrong. We're still going to have it this season. So gather around, young and old, shy and bold, everybody who's interested in eccentricities and craziness and the laws of America and throughout the world. Captain Kangaroo Court. Yeah. And uh, we are... I don't, I don't have the actual running time in front of me, but I feel certain we are well over our normal run time. That's okay. Already. We're only publishing every so, other week now. We can yeah, give people but, so 15 I'm, minutes I'm gonna extra. Limit, I'm going to limit it to one thing this time. Uh, but let me We could have loaded a lot of that earlier stuff into Captain Kangaroo Court, actually. That's that's so, fair. Like and, the you fact know, that's, that that's English courts are kangaroo courts, apparently. <laughs> That's part of, I'll say that was part of my thought process here, but for your information, because I'm guessing you probably do not know this, Young Thug is the name of a hip-hop artist. I did not know that, but honestly, you know, I could have guessed that. I, th- I thought you might be able to yeah. guess, but, you know, I don't, I don't want to presume. Anyway, the headline reads, potential juror for Young Thug trial ordered to write 30-page essay after skipping return to court. Um, this is this probably is... a good punishment, <laughs> especially if he really is a young thug. <laughs> well, uh, it's a it's a, a a woman who is identified only as juror number sixty four because you know it's an ongoing matter. But uh, <laughs> a juror who skipped a return court appearance to be considered as a juror in the trial of rapper Young Thug has been ordered to write a thirty page essay focusing on the history of jury service in Georgia. And I just want to take a minute here um, to note that I for the 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 master's program I'm currently in will require me to write something longer than 30 pages as my thesis. Right. My prior master's program did not. So I have actually never been assigned, despite having been, you know, through undergraduate and one prior graduate program, to write anything of this length before. That is insane. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. So this random yeah. juror is going to have to write something longer than you. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it could... It gets pretty specific. Um, the judge uh, ordered the woman to write the essay with 10 primary sources and 10 secondary sources and to submit it within three weeks, which that's a pretty aggressive timeline considering she's a businesswoman of some sort. She was, uh, The reason she didn't come to court when she was told to is that she was in the Dominican Republic on a business trip. Um, so, wow. Um, and, wow. Uh, huh. So she has three weeks to write, again, a paper longer than I've ever actually had to write for it. For this course. is Fulton County? Um, yes. Huh. Uh, and he also specified what reference style she has to use, which is APA style. And that's, I don't know about you, I don't like APA style very much. I prefer Chicago style. Um, you know, I honestly I, don't. I, don't know I like Blue Book. That's, <laughs> <laughs> I use Blue Book. So. <laughs> I, I like the specificity here. Oh, and it also specifies software will be used to check for plagiarism. And we're not going to talk today about chat GPT and all the stuff that's been in the, in the headlines recently about AI and uh, academic writing. We will talk about that at some point, I think. Although, because, surprise, uh, this entire episode was written by an AI. <laughs> untrue. Uh, and <laughs> if it had been, we should definitely look into a new AI because we <laughs> rambled yeah, way too true. much. Yeah, I had a lot of bias in there. <laughs> it just it got off on tangents yeah um, <laughs> i don't know why these but, ais believe all these election conspiracy theories uh anyway <laughs> i i think this is interesting too is that she didn't realize she was violating you know the requirements because she says she sent uh jury services a copy of her itinerary uh and she says i didn't really know i was in violation until the sheriff showed up wow unfortunately for her that's <laughs> That's going to result in a pretty 
hefty amount of work that she's going to have to do. I mean, she she could. She I, Presumably the judge issued – this article is very unclear. Presumably he issued a bench yeah. warrant, and that's what he's Likely, yeah. requiring as bail, I guess. I don't know. Likely. Likely. As, you know what this reminded me, though? Uh, uh, I know you like the show King of the Hill. I do like that show. I do show. as well. Uh, do you remember it was an early episode – where Hank uh, catches a guy who's trying to hotwire his truck and he citizens arrests him. He goes in to, to watch the trial and his wife tells him that the judge is known for his creative sentencing and he immediately just goes, oh no, like, you know, like, <laughs> it's awful. But then yeah. uh, he ends up sentencing the guy. He says, like, you know, oh, you like, uh, you like trucks so much. I'm going to sentence you to spend a month in the cab of one. And then he pauses and he goes, an import. <laughs> and then Hank sort of nods and he's like, all right, yeah. <laughs> Fitting punishment. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, that, that's what this reminded me of. A very creative uh, form of judicial punishment. Yeah, certainly that. <laughs> all right, well. All right, thank you, folks, for listening to this episode of Captain Kangaroo Court and also this episode of our podcast. we got a lot more exciting stuff planned for you guys coming up in the future. A few previews. We're going to do an episode on Jeremy Bentham, everyone's favorite talking head or... non-talking head as the case may be Uh, find out what that means in the episode about Uh we're gonna do uh i don't i don't have the list in front of me what else david uh we're gonna talk about you know we talked about the french revolution we talked about the american revolution or is it a revolution question mark um Mm. we're going to talk about something that certainly was a revolution the russian uh and uh, doing an episode on federalism i pulled it up so i have it now uh doing an episode (laughs) (laughs) on on the natural law tradition that's going to be a fun one I think we're all going to enjoy that. <laughs> you you definitely will. Um, we'll see if other people do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I guess enjoy, again, question mark, watching this on video. Uh, or, you know, you can tell us never to do this again if yeah, you prefer. Yeah, I don't want to see your faces. Um, <laughs> don't tell us that. I mean, be a little, be nice about it. But Yeah, we're, we're fragile. We're fragile yeah. men. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, thanks, everybody, for listening or watching, as the case may be. Uh, And we hope that you'll join us next time. Yeah, we'll see you folks two weeks from now.